welcome everybody to, I believe, the 20th official episode of Interview with the PD Pod. My name is Nick Fletcher, and I'm at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and Emory University. Uh, my guest today is a really tremendous uh, person. She is the recently appointed chair at Boston Children's and has made a life and career for herself answering a question that for many was probably thought to be uh, uh, sort of a dead end. She has focused her uh, entire career on how to repair the ACL rather than reconstruct it. Martha Murray is uh, has a really incredible academic pedigree having graduated from University of Delaware with a degree in mechanical engineering. She went on to get her master's in material science and engineering at Stanford before going to medical school at University of Pennsylvania, and then going on to do the Harvard Combined Residency and then the Boston Children's Fellowship. She was away for a year and then has been at Boston really ever since. She uh, has mo multiple R01 grants, uh, including, as she'll tell you, two in one cycle. She uh, is a former Kappa Delta Award winner, the Cabaud uh, Award winner, and uh, the 2022 RAF Clinical Research Award winner. She has really been amazingly successful creating this concept of bridge-enhanced ACL repair, or BEAR, that she'll talk about a lot. Uh, they've uh, done some uh, incredible work on it, including a prospective RCT. And uh, this really, I think, has the opportunity to change the way that ACL tears are managed in the future. Um, on top of that, she is an incredibly dynamic person, a lot of fun to talk to. We, we really had a great time and I, I loved hearing her story. I hopefully, uh, I, excuse me, I hope that, that you will as well. As always, I'd like to thank everybody for their tremendous support of this podcast. I'd like to thank Carter Clement and the rest of the podcast team for helping produce it. Uh, and um, as we approach Vancouver in a couple of months, I would implore people to make the trip. I think it's going to be great, um, and hopefully we'll get to see a lot of people there. So uh, as always, enjoy this, I think, really wide-ranging conversation. It was a lot of fun to, to uh, have Martha on the podcast, and I'm very appreciative of her, and I look forward to seeing you all soon. Thank you. So, Martha, thank you uh, for those on the podcast. It's a bright and early Saturday morning. In fact, uh, with all the podcasts that I've done, this is the earliest, but I'm an early morning guy. It sounds like you're early morning as well. So hopefully this was convenient for you. No, this is this is terrific. Thanks for doing this, Nick. Of course. So um, we're going to jump right in because uh, I have a lot of questions. Uh, but one of the first things that I noticed, you know, we, we don't have, I've said before in the podcast, we don't have a ton of capacity to look people up on Wikipedia or look at all their um, uh, social media posts, like somebody who does sort of a entertainment based podcast. So all I've got is your academic pedigree. And it's pretty impressive. I mean, if I was to, you can't knock out all of the major institutions in the country, but Harvard, Penn and Stanford are all pretty high up there. And, and I know that you started out at Delaware. So you've got this big academic pedigree. And I've found sort of through the course of these interviews that a lot of people have that coming to them from a family side of things, did you have, uh, a, you know, parents who were very sort of academically interested and what, what was your childhood like? Oh, my childhood was amazing. I was the oldest of five. Oh, wow. My mom um, stayed home and took care of us, which was more than a full-time job, as you can imagine. Uh, and then my dad is a construction superintendent. So he was an engineer and uh, worked in construction in Boston for his whole career. Um, and we lived in a, a, a house out in Sherburne, which is a small bedroom community of Boston that has more horses than people, I think. Um, and it was just, it was idyllic. It was a perfect childhood. 
So, well, that answers my question. You were probably sort of a tinkerer, right? If you've got a dad who's sort of in the construction world, were you a tinkerer kind of person as a kid? I think it was more that I wanted to, I wanted to be my dad, right? Dad was like, I was like, dad, can I help with the deck? He's like, yeah, don't touch the power tools. As a matter of fact, he's, he's still kind of like that, which it cracks me up. You know, I'm like, yeah. dad, you know, I, I do put screws into people's bones, you know, right? He's like, yeah, don't touch my deck. Okay. That is hilarious. <laughs> so is he, he's still going with that kind of stuff? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. takes care of their whole house. He, he does, he's, he's definitely a fixer upper guy. He's, he's great. He's, he's the best. So as the oldest, were you sort of the, and I've got, I have a a 14 year old daughter who's like type A, wants to be just like dad. Were you the typical type A gunner, oldest kid um, who who saw medicine early or or how did that come about? No, actually I wanted to be an engineer. So I think like your daughter, I wanted to be like my dad. Um, And my dad was a civil engineer um, and I really liked mechanical engineering. So actually at Delaware, I was a mechanical engineering major. And then I went to Stanford, um, Stanford to work in material science. So I was very interested in what's called composite materials, which are fiber reinforced materials, which were just coming on at the time that I was in undergrad and grad school. So I went to Stanford to get a material science degree in, in composite materials. And uh, medicine just sort of came out of that because you you didn't see the the career of sitting in a in a lab or in or or working on materials all day, and you wanted to have a little bit more humanistic component. No, actually, I loved engineering, loved it. I wanted to be an engineering professor. I did right up until the day I went to medical school, practically. So what happened was I was in my second year of grad school and I was at a party and some guy that I knew came in on crutches and I said, hey, what happened? You know, and he was a med student and he said, oh, I tore my ACL. And I said, oh, are they going to sew it back together? And he said, you stupid engineer, you know, you can't sew the ACL back together. Everybody knows that. You got to take this graft of tendon out of the back of my leg and you got to put it through holes in the bone. You got to fix it in place with screws. And then I'm on crutches for a while. And then my knee's not really the same, but, but that's what they do. That's what they replace it. They don't fix it. And I thought, you know, it, that just seems kind of excessive. Like so many other things in our body heal fine. What, why doesn't the ACL heal? Um, and I just got really interested in that question. And so I spent the next six months, every experiment that I had in the medical library there. And I just decided and I, what, when I, what I read was that we tried sewing it back together, didn't work. So we, you know, we gradually put stronger and stronger things into the, into the knee to make it stable, but nobody really ever figured out why it didn't heal in the first place. And I just was very interested in figuring that out. So I went to my advisor and said, Hey, I'd love to work on this, this uh, problem. Can, but there was no bioengineering at that time. So um, they said, well, you can either, you know, give that dream up and figure out how to make these uh, better materials for airplanes, which also was really interesting, but, or I guess you could go to med school. So I thought about it for about a year. I took my MCAT exam and then I got into Penn. And the nice thing about Penn was they had no pre-med requirements. If you got good enough scores on your MCAT, you didn't have to take any of this, you know, courses that so many other places required. So I could just go. Um, And so that's what I did. So I went to Penn and, and that's, and I went to Penn to get my uh, medical degree to become an orthopedic surgeon so I could study the ACL. I figured if I was an orthopedic surgeon, nobody could tell me you can't study that, right? That, that would be the end of that. So that's kind of how it worked out. I mean, that is crazy because you, I mean, so my dad was a radiologist and it was always sort of imprinted in me, even though he actually tried to talk me out of medicine multiple times because he thought I was just following his footsteps to follow in his footsteps. And then we're talking about my daughter. I've never heard of somebody who really pursued medicine to answer a single question. I mean, we're going to talk about some of the research uh, uh, later on, but uh, that's fascinating that that really started the whole journey. Um, so so I, my assumption is there was never 
a discussion of, hey, maybe cardiology seems interesting or maybe, you know, gastroenterology. It was like orthopedic straight from the get go um, from day one. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and it was, I mean, both in medical school, there was a lot of things I really enjoyed. Um, you know, I really enjoyed actually my urology rotation was probably one of my favorites because again, it's kind of the nuts and bolts and fixing things. Right. So um, there's a lot of things I enjoyed, but it was always the ACL. It was always, I wanted to figure this question out. And so you'd go along the way and collect all the tools that you need to be able to answer the question. Right. So, so in, in hindsight, do you feel like you were sort of singularly driven to the point that you sort of pushed away some of, I'm going to call it the fluff of, uh, of med school or, yeah, and, and honestly, I, I guess I think of it more as like a, um, uh, somebody who goes into a trade school right now, um, with the, uh, which I've, I've sort of advocated for, for a lot of people, if you could know right from the get go, this is the question I want to answer. There's a lot of psych and, you know, neurology that probably, you, you know, you never needed to focus on. And it allowed you to be a better clinician in the long run because you, you've you been doing this basically four years longer than, you know, than, than you would have otherwise, right? Because you, you've been focusing on it for so long. Right. So I didn't lose the times, you know, like the summer between first and second years of med school was spent in Carl Brighton's lab studying ACL cells and the effect of mechanical stress on the cells, right? I knew that was what I wanted to do with my free time. But I also knew that to get into an orthopedic residency, I had to ace psych, right? I had to ace everything. Yeah. Um, so, so in some ways, yeah, you could, you could focus your free time on things that were related to the ACL and orthopedics, but in other ways you had to really engage in everything else as well. So, so my guess is to go from this process where, um, you know, where you had a question that hadn't been answered to, you know, to getting through residency, you had to have some pretty good mentors early on. What mentors or, or which mentors really sort of helped you through that process? Hmm. That's a good question. It, it, it's been a funny career, honestly. I think my best mentors were my parents, you know, because they were always, I was like, what if I go to med school and I fail? And they're like, well, then you fail. I'm home for a year, figure it out. And we'll do, you know, you'll do the next thing. Um, so there was always that safety net, which was just a huge bonus for me. Um, so I think my family was really important. If you go into any orthopedic lab, really, and you say, I want to study the ACL and figure out how to get it to heal, everybody kind of laughs at you, right? So it was a little challenge. I would say Joe Iannotti was a big mentor and force at Penn. Um, so I'd watch him come in from the OR and he'd come into the lab and he'd tell everybody what to do. And this is the experiment we're going to run. And he'd do some, you know, animal surgery and he'd do other stuff. And just watching him, see him do that. That was, it was great to have him as an example at Penn. Yeah. That's a, that's amazing. So, and, and sort of along those lines, you know, I've had um, good friends of mine, Christine Ho and um, Amy McIntosh and Michelle cared on this. And they spoke a lot about sort of female mentors and certainly in the nineties, I, I mean, you know, I look at it now, but in the nineties, when you were coming through, I'm sure that the list of female mentors was a lot smaller even than it would be right now. Did you, was there somebody who you looked at from that side of things and thought, wow, this is, you know, awesome. She's sort of be, killing it on all ends. Um, well, I definitely, there were, there were women residents that went through orthopedics before me at Harvard that were amazing. Um, you know, Nancy Madsen Cummings was terrific. Uh, I really loved her. And there's lot, there was lots of good women around. Um, I don't know about mentors so much, more just like friends. Role models say, and friends, yeah. Yeah. I, I would say that in res late residency and early facultyhood, really, I would say probably the key mentor for me was Kurt Spindler. Oh, really? Um, yeah. I trained at yeah. Vanderbilt, so 
There so, you go. So, yeah, yeah. So, so we probably crossed paths because I went down to Vanderbilt and did surgery, animal surgeries down there with him when we were early on in the project. But he he and I met at a um, at an academy meeting, and he was the he was the moderator for a talk I was giving, and I gave the talk, and he you know on the podium he totally skewered me. Right, I, I was a resident, I was giving a big talk at the academy, I was really scared. And he like he just basically just annihilated me on the stage. This is how I remember it. He denies this ever happened, but it's right, me. right, of course. Yeah. So he annihilates me on the stage, and then you know I get down, and the next person gives their talk, and at the end of the session, you know he kind of wanders over to me and says, you know, I've been thinking about what you said, you know, and and maybe that does really make sense. And I was like, okay, you couldn't have said that ten yeah. minutes ago, you know. <laughs> um, so and so we started talking, and we ended up collaborating on some pretty key projects early on. Um, and just he was he's been a great friend and a great help ever since then, because it's hard to find believers when you're doing something that's really kind of off the beaten path. Um, but he was he was he was not always a believer that we were going to make this work, but I think he was a believer in me. And that made all the difference. So Yeah. And Kurt's a pretty dynamic guy. I mean, you know, he was I, I, I don't uh, I, I've I've don't question for a second that he would skewer you on stage because I was definitely in the hot seat uh, a number of times with him. But but. You know, he's got such a good heart at the end of the day that I think that uh, that he's somebody who can sort of mentor. He mentored me for sure. So so yeah. but along those lines, I mean, Kurt's an adult uh, sports medicine surgeon. So how did PEDS come out of this? So PEDS came out of it really because I was at Harvard and, um, you know, the ACL, the largest population and the most vulnerable population, I think, for ACL tears are the teenagers. Right. So. You can take care of that either through a pediatric hospital or through an adult hospital. But the environment at Children's, really the academic environment there was so rich, right? We had Jim Kasser as the chair. We had Lyle McKaylee as the head of sports medicine. There was just a lot of support for me as a young faculty member at that institution um, that Children's just was the best place for me to fit. And the, uh, one of the other key things that Jim Kasser put in place that was really helpful to me as a young surgeon scientist was that um, you know, the compensation was on an eat what you kill model. So I wanted to spend two days a week in the lab and three days a week in the clinic. Um, if, if I went somewhere where it was salaried, you, which I did for a year, uh, you hear at all the faculty meetings, how come Martha gets two days off, right? And that, for me, that was just intolerable. Um, but in the CASER model, if I worked two days a week in the lab and wasn't getting paid anything, I just made 60% of the salary of, of if I worked five days a week. It didn't hurt anybody else. It didn't. So there was no, nobody cared. Right. And so I could do this without feeling like I was hurting anybody else. I could just do I could decide how I wanted to balance my life. And that was an incredibly helpful model. Um, so some of those supportive things really just led me to, to work at Children's and, um, and be in pediatric orthopedics and sports medicine. But so the, the decision to go into PEDS started with, with a realization that the, the population that you felt was most critical to answering your question was kids. And then it's funny because one of the questions that I had written down was, and I've got a lot of good friends, as you probably know, in your group. Uh, I mean, Ben Shore and I were uh, are sort of same year. And Mike Lotzbecker, um, who obviously is no longer with you, uh, we were same year. So we're, we've always been close friends. Everybody who trains at Harvard wants to stay at Harvard. And obviously you are one of them. Um, and it's it's interesting, uh, you know, as as chair, it that that trend must be great, but also a little bit of a challenge because, you know, everybody you train wants to stick around and is looking for a job and sniffing for a job, I'm sure, as soon as they get done because it's such a great environment. Well, the, the great thing is, is that the people that train at Harvard, both at the resident and fellow level, are so awesome, right? Yeah. 
So, you know, it's easy to keep them. It's easy to help them find great jobs if they want to be somewhere else. It's, it's, they really do make my job and helping them be successful, be very, very straightforward and easy. Um, they're just fantastic. So can't say enough good things. Yeah. So obviously we're going to get to your research in a second, but at the end of the day, everybody needs to be, everybody who's a researcher needs to be an orthopedic surgeon if they're going to be a, a physician scientist. Tell me a little bit about the first couple of years in practice. Yeah, sure. So my first few years of practice, I already had an NIH grant that supported 50% of my salary. Um, so I had two and a half days a week in the lab and two and a half days a week in clinic in the OR. So typically it was a day and a half a week of clinic and a day of OR every week, something like that. Um, and I, I did trauma call. I did all the other stuff. I did general orthopedics as well as sports. And then over time, as I was able to uh, have more of my practice focus on that, this, particularly the adolescent knee, then it gradually morphed over five or six years to really just be a adolescent knee focused practice. So one thing I found that was really helpful is to try to move towards um, a practice that was focused on the same area I was doing research. It helps to keep up with the same literature. It helps to keep up with the same meetings. That was very helpful. In the beginning, it was a little more challenging because you kind of have to do everything. Um, but uh, then I gradually morphed into that. And then when I got pregnant with my third child, I actually had to go out on bed rest for six months. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, which was a little scary. Yeah. But I had amazing colleagues. I remember Jim Casser coming in and saying, you just go home and get to bed. We will take care of this. Dan Hedequist came forward and basically took all my call. You know, he said, yeah, I'll just take care of it for you. Don't worry about it. I mean, oh, like God. it was it was unbelievable, the support um, that I got for that. And during that time, um, you know, I could lie on my left side so I could type with one hand. My dad got Wi-Fi set up in the house. That was back in the early days of Wi-Fi. And wow. so I, I could type on this computer. And like, I remember the accountant being like, your emails are really slipping. You're not capitalizing the letters anymore. And I was like, Dean, I don't have two hands. I can only type with one hand. Like, you got to give me a break. But I was able to, um, to write a couple of uh, grants during that time that got funded. And so when I came back, I had a pretty well-funded lab. And Jim Casper and I sat down and he said, you know, maybe we take you off trauma call now and we just have you do sports call and your sports practice because that would let you focus more. And that was that was really helpful. So, um, you know, the more you can focus your research and your clinical areas in the same space, I think the more helpful it is. Yeah, for sure. And uh, but, you know, obviously the first couple of years are sort of tough from a clinical standpoint a lot of times because. As much as you, I'm sure, had been very well trained with Lyle and everybody, the fact is, you know, you need your own learning curve. Um, and, you know, that sort of 10,000 hours issue comes up where you need to make sure that you're getting the reps in so that at the end of the day, the, the research that you're going to do is going to be, you know, if you're going to have a clinically impactful procedure that you're good enough to do the procedure and whatnot. How do, how do you keep up those volumes when you're spending half the time in the lab? Yeah. So again, it's, it's, I think it's about focus, right? So I really pretty quickly did trauma cases. So lots of supercondylars, right? Femur fractures, standard, you know, stuff that you got to do because it's urgent and you got to do it. I learned how to, and then in my sports practice, I really pretty quickly stopped doing things that were not knee. So my partners were pretty happy to have me send them the shoulders and the ankles and the spine stuff. And I'd really try to focus my surgical practice really on the knee reasonably quickly. So I was doing 100 ACLs a year, which I think is as much as almost anybody, you know, a lot, not, certainly not as much as a Min Coker or Lyle McKaylee, but in terms of human beings, you know, I, yes, I yeah. think it's probably as many as, uh, as anybody. And I felt like I could keep up with knee, arthroscopic knee procedures uh, pretty well. But again, it was about the focus. Um, so. 
Yeah, I think that's a that's a great point for for anybody. I mean, uh, you know, and we've become more focused and and knowing your group pretty well, I think that that Jim had done a nice job of creating, you know, the Ben Shore who is only focused really in one area and and men and and Don Bay and I mean everybody's does such a good job up there of sort of um, focusing their clinical and academic pursuits in one area. I think that's great. Um, so. Yeah, and it's an advantage of being in a big department too, right? We have 53 clinicians, right? So, you know, you could practically be a right knee surgeon if you wanted to, right? Right. So, yeah. <laughs> which is, yeah. which, so it's a luxury for us, really. Right, exactly. Unless unless somebody wants to be a generalist, in which that's that's not going to work out so well, yeah. We have plenty of room for generalists, though. We really do. Um, so, but, but you're right. It's, it's, it's nice to be, it's, it's a great place if you want to do academic medicine and focus on research and clinical in, in a certain area because you're allowed to focus. Agreed. Right. So uh, let me step back a little bit because I do want to get a uh, dive in a little bit more into the research side of things. So, you know, um, I, I, and it was really fascinating looking through your, your background and I watched some videos that you would, uh, that are online that you've done on your, um, on the children's website and whatnot. But Clearly that, like you said, this is a question that really has driven your entire career. And yet you were a, um, at the time, an undergrad. And so I'm sort of curious about uh, if you could walk me through the process of taking a question that everybody thinks is a little bit crazy to be asking, that has no track record of ever going anywhere from an answer standpoint, and, and, and jumping into that early. And, and saying, this is A, what I want to focus my career on, but I'm going to succeed potentially where others have failed. And I, I, it's, I mean, it's really inspiring to, to somebody like me who likes research, but a lot of the stuff, honestly, that I'm trying to answer, at least I have an idea that it might work. And this is something that nobody had ever gotten to work before. So just talk me through the genesis of that. Well, I, I think I never knew it was going to work or not, right? So I think... Um... It, it, this is the, where I think the engineering training comes in and the, the, just the curiosity, right? So as engineers, we're trained to identify what a problem is uh, and then figure out what the boundary conditions are. What are the knowns and what are the unknowns? Really, honestly, what do we know about the problem? What do we not know about it? And how do we start to plug in and, and solve some of those variables, right? So you go from a question that has five different variables that are undefined and you work your way down to figure out what the final variable is. So for me, looking at the ACL problem, it was that, okay, you know, go and read as much as you can, figure out where are the boundary conditions, what do we know and what do we not know? Uh, we know that repair with a suture alone doesn't work, but we don't know anything more than that. So to me, then it was like, okay, well, if we're going to figure out how to make it work, we need to figure out why it didn't work, right? And so we've got the medial collateral ligament of the, so it was just, it was a series of questions. So first it was figuring out why does the ACL not work? So I thought, okay, we've got the medial collateral ligament, which heals fine when you tear it, put them in a brace and go play soccer in six weeks, right? But the ACL doesn't heal even when we sew it back together. Could we take an animal model and make an injury to the ACL and an injury to the MCL and compare the two? See, where did it go off the tracks, right? Um, And so we spent, so this is now when I was a both a resident and then early faculty was spent on those types of experiments, comparing ACL cells and MCL cells, comparing the tissues response to injury. And what we found when we did that was that the, when we look at basic biologic processes, both, you know, things like cell proliferation that happens in both tissues after injury, uh, blood vessel proliferation happens in both tissues. Can the cells make collagen happens in both tissues, but does a bridge form between the torn ends 
Well, in the MCL, the ends bleed, it makes a nice blood clot that's trapped between the fascial planes there, and it, it, it rejoins the ends of the MCL. The MCL grows back into the blood clot and heals. But in the ACL, it tears, the ends bleed, but the blood gets all dissolved by the synovial fluid because it's in that fluid environment. So there's never anything that kind of sticks the two ends back together. So if I'd only figured that out for my whole career, that would have been fine, right? If that was the first question, like, why does the ACL not heal? So, but then when you figure out that question, then you're like, huh, is there something we could do about it? What's the next question? Um, and so then the next question was, well, can we stick something in there and get it to heal? And what would that thing be? What's the best thing to put in there? So then that's another, I don't know, 10 years of, but they're all fun experiments, right? It's like, okay, we try this, that doesn't work. Okay, that's not so fun. But then you try this and it works a little bit. And, you know, in the early days, we would put things into a pig, we'd cut the ACL of a pig's knee, and then we'd put a something in there and see what would happen. And half the time we would be carrying, you know, we'd, we'd, after euthanasia, the animal, we'd carry the knee over to the testing machine and the ACL was so skinny and so teeny that we'd like be holding it and be like, don't sneeze, you know? But there was something there, right? So that was yep. the first step. And then you figure out, oh, okay, we got to make more of this. And then, you know, it gets to where, oh my gosh, now it's as strong as a graft in this animal model. Well, that's pretty good, you know? So it's, it's, it was just more of a, and then when you have it working well in the animal model, you say, okay, well, that's great if it works in the animal model. But the next thing we got to figure out is how the heck would you take something that we've designed in the lab and get it so that we could try it in people? Like, how do we figure out that it's as safe and as effective as possible before we do that first human patient's case, right? So then there's that whole series of experiments. So it, it's a, it, it was really a stepwise progression and each step was really fun. So, you know, I would have been happy just doing the first step, to be honest with you. So. That's great. So, uh, I mean, I think of this almost in like terms of a movie. Was there a point where you had this eureka, like, oh my God, that's the reason it's in, you know, it's bathed in synovial fluid. That's why it won't heal together. Do you remember the period where you thought if I, I, I really figured out what the problem is and now I just have to, you know, the, the next process will be getting through that that uh, issue where basically I need to figure out a way to block out the synovia, the synovial fluid. Do you remember yeah, that? It, it, you know, so I think what it was, was that, um, you know, we've been looking at, so I, when I was a resident, I used to um, bribe the OR nurses. This was back when you could have food down in the little nurse's office in the ORs. So I had a candy jar down there and I would put wrapped candies in there for people to take, you know, it's just thanks for helping me with my ACL study. And they used to, so whenever anybody had an ACL procedure, I'd go down and ask the surgeon, can you just use a blade to take the, the stump out and I'll take it back to the lab. I'd fix it. I'd look at it under the microscope, see what was going on as a basis of time from injury. So I had been looking at all these slides and, you know, I, there was one slide that was an acute injury. Um, from a football player. So it was a professional football player had just torn their ACL because they're the only ones that really got into the OR within five or six days. Uh, and I took it back to the lab and looked at it. And I was like, you know what? There's a little bit of blood on the top of this, but where's the, I would expect there to be a lot more blood. And so it was really that moment looking at the human pathology and just saying, huh, wh where's the blood? And that made me realize, hold on a second, we have been looking at these slides from the animal models and we're seeing what's happening in the stump, but we're not thinking about what's happening in between. Um, and that's when we really started thinking, hold on. And then I read some papers and there was a guy named, uh, oh shoot, what was it? Harold, who did some experiments where he drilled a pin through a, a dog's knee and the knee, and he, he showed that blood doesn't clot in the joint, basically. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is what's going on. So it was kind of a constellation of things all coming together. So. That's pretty awesome. Now, the now the opposite question probably also holds true. Was there a 
instance that you remember where the sanity of this whole process was put to the test and you thought like this, you know, we're, we're sort of up against it and we haven't figured this out. And I don't know if this is actually going to continue to move forward. We've sort of hit a wall. Oh yeah, yeah. like once a month. Yeah. Okay. That's what I figured. <laughs> a- any, any specific ones that, that come to mind where you thought, well, oh man. I think the biggest, so having an experiment that doesn't work is a bummer, but where it really, where it really gets frustrating for me is you, you spend six weeks crafting a hundred page grant proposal. You think you've got everything all tied up. You've made it all logical. You read it and you're like, I think this is great. And you send it in and it comes back and somebody basically just tells you, this is, you know, this is ridiculous. We're not even going to score it. Your grant got triaged. Those are the moments that are truly soul sucking, I, I, you know, um, and over the years, and they happen a lot, right? So it can be a paper rejection, it can be a grant rejection, but rejection is just part of the deal when you do research. Um, so those are really hard. And, and over time, I've learned that the only way to really handle that for me is to, to read it, get really hurt, really mad, put it in a drawer, not think about it for a couple of weeks. And get let that emotion all seep out, and then then I can go back and read the review again and, and figure out where are the nuggets of truth in that. Because um, when I first get it, it's just kind of like a sheet of red. It's just like Ugh, I hate everything. I'm never going to do this again. This is you know. Um, but a couple weeks later, usually that emotion is kind of leaked out, and you can find the nuggets of what you need to move forward. So. Yeah, I uh, I mean it, it may be worth asking how, you know at ballpark how many grants you've had rejected in time. I remember early on. My good friend Dave Skaggs told me that he's had more papers rejected than I'll probably ever submit, which I think is probably true, knowing A, Dave's proliferation, and B, just like the how the process. In fact, I think at one point, I don't know if it ever got published, he, uh, he and Lindsay Andres had put together a paper that basically said they took papers that had been rejected and took them completely unchanged and resubmitted them to a, another journal and had like a really high acceptance rate, just sort of showing the arbitrary nature of the process. But I mean, are, do you think that you're, you as a highly, uh, uh, you know, touted uh, researcher have come up with a 10% acceptance rating grants, 50%? Where do you think your ballpark is? Just for those on the, who are going to listen to this and, and get discouraged at some point in their career. Well, I don't want to discourage anybody, but I wrote 12 R01s before I had one funded. Holy cow. But then I got two funded in the same cycle. So you know, you just don't know right, yeah. what's going to happen. So I would say it's definitely less than 10%. Um, maybe. But what you have to do is learn how to recycle pieces of them. So you just send one in every cycle when you're in that active phase of needing to get funds. Yeah. Um, so you learn how to, here's your resources page. Here's your da-da-da. You just change your specific games and your science part. But the rest of it all is kind of pieces that you just plug and play. So, um, but it, and, and you, yeah. Oh, I was going to say, how many uh, or how much experience did you have? How much experience did you have in the grant writing process beforehand? I mean, clearly now you, you've if you've submitted twelve R ones, you get pretty good at submitting them um, and putting them together. But uh, you know, did you have somebody sort of helping you along that process? Was this trial and error on your own? Yeah. So early on, it, it was the majority of it was trial and error on my own, and I think that's why it took so long. Because you think you read the instructions, you think you're sending in what needs to go in, but then you get feedback and you're like, oh, okay, they don't like that. Okay, I got to figure this out. Um, and then, so so that was early on. I think one of the things I could have done a lot better is found more mentorship in grant writing, and that would have shortcut a lot of those steps. Um, having somebody who is experienced read my grant and help me figure out what study section wants, what they don't want, 
I think that would have been very helpful early on. Uh, later in my career, um, when, when Braden Fleming and I started to collaborate, he's a PhD at Brown as my husband, and we started working together on a lot of things and writing grants together. He's an, just an amazing grant writer. So that made things a lot better, getting a PhD collaborator to help you with the grant writing part and help you with the project. I mean, he just upped the science tremendously um, for everything. So so that was really a very helpful step mid-career. Yeah, Yeah, I can imagine. So I'm going to ask, and, and this is uh, maybe a little bit hard to answer, for those who are starting out, what are some of the things, that, what are a couple of points that you would say are really critical to a good grant at that level? Obviously, there's probably a lot of things, but are there a couple of real take-home points that you'd say, like, this stuff, This is something that you really have to, have to get in and, and understand? So I would say when you're starting out um, and study section doesn't know your name, the key is to put together a good team that they do know, Right. These don't have to be even co-investigators. They can be consultants. But getting getting experienced people and names that study section will know on as co-investigators on your grant, even if it's for 5%, and really having them help you write the grant is, is critical. Having a statistician on your grant and statistician review and write the statistics section, that can be extremely helpful because right now in today's funding you know, environment, everybody's looking for an excuse to not fund something. So if, and statistics is the easiest thing to pick apart. So having a statistician on your grant really helps. Um, and again, that comes to the team that you're putting together. I would also say NIH has a, um, an early reviewers program. So if you're interested in getting NIH funding, I would strongly recommend contacting NIAMS uh, and Chuck Washavar or whoever, you know, whoever else you know at NIH and figuring out how to try to get into that early reviewer program. Because it allows you to go to study section and review grants yourself. And I think that is an incredible learning experience. So if you ever have an opportunity to do that, it's a lot of work. I won't kid you, but it it's it's like a whole, it's like getting your master's degree in grant writing. If you just do one of those, you'll just learn so much about the process. So, Wow. Okay. So going back to the, to the um, uh, sort of the process of creating this model and, and working through it. What, you know, you talked about some of the, the challenges that occurred on basically a monthly uh, basis, but what were some of the big early successes that sort of kept you going? I mean, you talked about sort of no, realizing where the, 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 where the clot dissolution was occurring, but, you know, it, so now you've figured out the problem, but what were some of the early successes, especially as you're trying to get this grant funding that thought, okay, I'm going to keep this going. Like this is going to continue to work for me. Yeah, I think that the, uh, so there was a couple phases. So when you first start out, you don't have a lot of money. So it's mostly kind of Petri dish stuff, right? Benchtop stuff, because that doesn't require a lot of, it requires a lot of sweat, but not a lot of money. So I think doing things like making, you know, we figured out how to make collagen gels and watching the ACL, we, we used to use ACL explants. So you, you take the ACL tissue, cut it into little pieces, put a piece in the gel, and then you could watch the cells crawl out, right? And watching those cells crawl out into the gel and realizing they looked so happy and they were just doing what they were supposed to be doing, I was like, okay, there's hope for the torn ACL, right? And they actually crawl even more when you use a torn ACL tissue, right? So the, the intact ACLs grow out kind of slowly, but then the torn ACLs really at, at a certain time point around four to eight weeks after injury, they grow out like crazy. So just watching that, just, uh, I don't know, I, I had this weird soft spot for the ACL. Like I was like, you go cells, you got it. And seeing them do it was really, that was just, I used to love going into the lab and just seeing how are you guys doing today? What's going on? Um, so that was really fun. And then I think is when, then the next phase was kind of going to the animal models and seeing that we did a, an early experiment where we, um, 
you know, while the animal's under anesthesia, we cut both ACLs and we sew one together with stitches and then sew the other together with stitches plus a collagen scaffold plus platelets. And then, you know, we take down the knees at four weeks and to see that there was something there, right? That, and there was nothing there on the stitch side. The stitches had broken, the stuff had resorbed, but on the side that we put the scaffold in, now it's reconnecting. Like that was pretty amazing. And that was like, okay, you know, if this, if it can do it in an animal knee, it should be able to do it in a human knee. It might not directly translate and we got to make it better, but I think we're on the right track. Um, So it's, you know, every experiment was fun. There's some that, you know, we did a big experiment where we looked at, we thought platelet rich plasma was really going to be the answer. Like getting more platelets into the scaffold was going to be helpful. And we did a year long study, huge study. And it turns out that adding, you know, making the platelet rich plasma was no better than whole blood. That, that was a, that was a hard day just because it was like, seriously, Yep. You know, like all this work for to find out that the control was the best. Right. But, you know, you get over that. Right. So that's hard, hard day. But then later it's like, OK, well, that's the answer. That's the answer. You know, it's not just because we wanted a different answer doesn't make the, the answer we wanted the right one. So we just have to take what's right and keep going. So. Yeah, absolutely. But but, you know, that's a pretty expensive wrong answer to get to. And so. I'm sort of curious, uh, were there periods like that where you thought, okay, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get, continue to get funding. Like, how am I going to, you know, propagate this through time? hundred percent. And I think the hardest part for that, because you can always spin the, the platelet thing, you can always find other things to publish on and do stuff with, right? You can show, oh, there's no synovitis or there's, there's difference between males and females, or if you use absorbable or non-absorbable sutures, like you can always figure that out. But where it really, um, there's a, where I found the biggest struggle for funding was once we had good results in the animal model and now the FDA says, okay, here's the laundry list of tests that you've got to run to make sure it's biocompatible. Here's how you got to do a sterilization validation study. Um, And some of the things they don't even tell you, they say, you've got to prove to us that it's sterile. You've got to prove to us it's biocompatible. So you've got to go find somebody who can tell you what those words mean. You've got to go find somebody that tells you what those tests are. You've got to go find money to do those tests, um, like peel and you know peel and bubble testing for the packaging. Like I don't know what that is, but so you got to you got to figure out all that stuff. And there's not a lot of NIH funding for that, right? Testing the packaging, not really an NIH funded project. You can't really write a specifics aim page for that. So that was a little bit challenging. But I will say that NIH was very helpful because we we did propose. Here's some experiments we need to do to make this technology move forward as an administrative supplement to an R01. And that did get funded by NIH, which was great. Um, but then for the rest of the work, you have to kind of think of non-traditional sources for that. So translational research bodies. And we were lucky enough to then get involved with the National Football League Players Association um, and went to them and said, hey, guys, you know, this is great. We can make it work in the lab. But in order to get it to people, we've got to do this series of work. Can you help us? Um, and so they were really helpful, both with the preclinical, but then also the early clinical studies, which were hard to find funding for as well. So that's great. So, I, you know, uh, I hadn't actually written this down as one of my questions, but um, when, when we're going to get to some of the chairwoman stuff later on. But so now you're a chair of a program and you've got a very unique experience because uh, and I know your former chairs reasonably well, but none of them have this background as somebody who is who has walked through some of those hurdles, have you changed your approach to the physician scientist support within the group because of the fact that you realize like if our group is going to be creating these major innovations, we need to be able to support. And I know that you have a pretty big uh, departmental endowment. We need to be able to support that kind of stuff, right? That kind of the package insert kind of trials 
because those are going to be the the hurdles that may potentially cause people to stumble and not be able to advance forward. A hundred percent. And I think one of the, yes, absolutely. And one of the, uh, when I was going for this job, one of the things that I put forward was that I think we need to do this as an institution, right? This isn't just about orthopedics. This is for everybody. We, we do so well at drug development and so well at gene therapy development. But when it comes to devices, which are so critical to our field, there's not, there's not even a clean room to make devices at children's, right? So we're changing that. That's, that's the plan, is to figure out how do we make a center for surgical research translation that's focused on getting devices from idea or proof of principle in an animal model through to that first you know, clinical, early clinical trials. Because right now, especially for orthopedics, there's not many strategic orthopedic companies that want to pick up technologies at the proof of principle stage. Right. They really want to pick it up when it's already commercialized. It's already up and running. Um, but so somebody's got to get these great ideas there, you know, to that level of commercialization. And I think as a department, I think we can really work on doing that. Um, so that's the hope. Yeah. So I want to get back to uh, you mentioned the FDA and I'm going to uh, say that I'm not a huge fan of bureaucratic red tape, um, and I can only imagine how frustrating the FDA can be at times. You actually said on one of the, the sites that I saw that you really wish you'd learn more about the FDA process ahead of time. And I had the opportunity probably eight years ago to have dinner with the late Bob Campbell, who created you know this amazing instrument that in my world of spine that really has has probably saved you know thousands of lives of kids with early onset scoliosis. And I remember hearing him talk about the process of taking this amazing idea and just getting sort of bludgeoned by the FDA for over, you know, a decade or decade and a half trying to get through it. What, tell me about the experience and, and what do you wish you had learned more about the FDA um, sort of on the front end or that you knew more about the FDA on the front end? Yeah, sure. So when we first started thinking about trying to get this project kind of early on in 2007, we founded a company to try to get things moving more because we could bring in philanthropy and money to help move this project forward. And when we started that company, it was called Connective Orthopedics. Um, really, the thought was to not really talk to the FDA very much. Let's get the data and then we'll present a final package to them. And then, of course, the market crashed and there was not a lot of, uh, of appetite for continuing venture and that company folded. Um, but I was always kind of like, hmm, I don't, I don't know enough about the FDA uh, to know whether we should have gone forward or not. Then when we started another company in, what was it, 20, I don't know, 2016 or something, Miop Orthopedics, um, I had more control of that because we we just, we did it on a shoestring. We didn't bring in venture. So nobody was really telling us what we had to do at the beginning. Uh, and I had a wonderful collaborator, Doris Peterkin, and her husband, Gordon Roberts, was our quality consultant. And we had a great team and we just made the decisions. And we decided early on to approach the FDA and say, look, let's get this classified. This is a collagen scaffold. We think it should be regulated as a device. What do you guys think? And define that pathway for us. Because if they said, no, it should be a combination product, it's a different pathway. So we went to the FDA, we said, it's collagen. It's not active. It's just holding the blood in place and letting the blood do its thing. And the FDA agreed and said, yep, we think it's a device. And we got into a early pilot program for the FDA, which is where they kind of mentor you and they help you figure out what you need to do more than they do so in other situations, I think. this was, And they may be doing more of it now with new projects based on the success of that program, because I think that program was pretty successful. So we went to the FDA, we all went down to Washington, and we sat and talked in a room with the FDA panel. And that was an incredible, that, that was really an impactful meeting, 
because you put faces to the names, they see you, they, you really learn um, who the people are in the room. And from that point forward, we had a review panel that we worked with on everything. So there were a series of engineers that were the first line of contact through the, I don't know, five or six years that this took. Um, but anytime we had a question, we would just email them or call them and say, hey, can you guys, this is, we're getting told by this company, we have to do this many animals. We're, this company says we have to do this many animals. Is there some more guidance on what we should do? We're happy to do as many as we need to, but I don't want to do too many because that doesn't seem right. So it was all of those types of questions we were able to get feedback on and help with putting together the package. And I think it was that collaborative nature. Yes, was it hard when they said, yeah, this data is not good enough. You guys got to go repeat it. Yeah, that was hard. But as academics, we're not going to lose our job if we don't make next quarter's, you know, milestone, right? That's not the way our lives work. So we could go back and, yeah, we have to go raise the money to run the experiment again, but it's, it's, it's definitely doable. So I found the collaborative work with the FDA to be extremely helpful. And I'm not sure this project would have made it through without their help. I mean, we don't, we're not FDA experts, right? We don't know how this is supposed to work, but they do. And they provide all that information for free. Yeah, <laughs> but it's all on the job training for you too, right? Like it's sort of, uh, you know, trial and error to some extent as you go, but it was nice to have that guidance, I'm sure. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And and we had, and, and Doris and Gordon both were very knowledgeable about the FDA and getting devices through and what, you know, so having consultants, just like when you're getting ready to write your first grant, having a PhD who's written a lot of grants help you with it, very helpful. When you go to the FDA, having a regulatory consultant, having a project manager, having, you know, people that are experienced with the FDA is also very helpful, so. Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, sort of getting back to the clinical side of things, the, you know, you I'm sh if you look through your your life, obviously this has been very critical to uh, your practice because you focused entirely, like you said, really really on the knee. But how did this process uh, change your practice as you went through it? So I'm sure early on you didn't have the ability to, to put a scaffold in the knee, so you're doing you know your traditional ACL. But at some point, I'm sure the science started catching up with that, and you know. Did patients seek you out early on, even before you had created a, a, a viable in vivo model or in vivo process? Um, how did how did this impact your your practice? I don't I don't know how much it did. I think people did find me on the web and say, "Oh, she's doing research on the ACL," um, and people would come in and say, "I want the you know the procedure that you're doing in pigs," and I'd have to say, "You can't have it." But I would tell, I think it did impact my practice because very early on, I started leaving as much ACL there as possible. So I was always a hamstring graft person and, you know, but I never took out the stump. Um, I would say probably as soon as we realized that there was all this biology in the stump that was really good. So I would just put my pin through the center of the, fem the tibial stump and then through the center of the femoral stump and drill it out and leave that kind of sheath around the ACL, uh, around the graft and hopes that it would maybe crawl up the graft and, and reattach itself, at least some of it. Um, so it was things like that that I used to like to do, just try to preserve the biology. I think I just respected the biology more when I learned what was in that stump. And when you started uh, sort of through this process from a time management standpoint, one of my closest friends in the world is John Scheneker, who obviously also has a similar love of being a clinician scientist. And I know at times his struggles when he is going through a period where he's got a really big pro project in the lab. And as you're going through this, how did you say, okay, I'm still going to be 50% clinical and 50% research and, and I'm not going to bleed one into the other, which I, I assume would probably be bleeding more into the end of the research side, you know, like, yeah. like your clinical process starts to take a hit because you're focusing more on the research. 
Well, the nice thing about sports medicine is that it's pretty seasonal, right? So super busy kind of May through, you know, May through, well, actually super busy more April through kind of early July. Then it's kind of busy for the rest of the summer, but then dead in September and October. Busy again, November, December, dead again, January, February, and then starts to pick up. So once you kind of realize that, you you might not be two and a half days a week in the lab, two and a half days a week in the clinic and OR every week. But in September and October, that's a perfect time to do a big animal trial because if you miss a day of clinic, you're missing like, you know, you're missing patients for your clinic, but you're not going to be booking a lot of cases in September and October. At least I, I didn't find I was. Um, especially in my teenage population, right? They're just going back to school. They're just beginning to get hurt for the fall sports. They need to do their prehab. Um, you know, so it just was always quiet then and then in January and February. So those would be the times, write a couple grants, do a big animal study, um, do things that may take more of your time and effort just because the clinical side will be slower. I gotcha. Okay. Now, talk to me about sort of where this fits currently in your practice. Um, I know that obviously you've done now a couple of pretty large trials, look, you know, co- that have showed the the viability of it. And it seems like it's working great. How is this working now? How do you look at it in the next five to 10 years um, with regards to a, your own sort of personal practice or, or the practice up in Boston, and then potentially on a, on a more national level or international level? Yeah. So just to take a step back about three years ago, when we were trying to get the company up and running and transfer the manufacturing to a factory, I actually stopped my clinical practice. So I just did research and worked at the company to try to get things translated over. Um, so, and now that I'm back as the chair, I'm back seeing patients, um, but not doing surgeries you know, doing surgeries with my partners, but not doing surgeries by myself at the moment. So we'll see how that goes. The being the chair of a, a big department like this is it's kind of all consuming, to be honest. Yeah. With you. So we'll see how the surgery piece goes. Because I don't want to, like, as you to mentioned to your earlier point, I don't want to do a, a case, you know, five times a year. That's not productive for anybody. So we'll see how that piece goes. But in terms of bear and how it's going to affect national I, national practice, I think, I think I'm hopeful that bear will at least turn the tide a little bit from repair will never work to wait, maybe if we address the biology, we can get ACL repair to work, right? Even if we just nudge that discussion, even if that's all that Bayer does, that would be, for me, that would be very gratifying. Um, uh, So we, in the trials that we ran at Children's, we ran a 20 patient trial first, and then a 100 patient randomized control trial. The Bayer 2 trial is probably the thing I'm most proud of in my whole career. I mean, the, this was run by Lyle McKaylee and Dennis Kramer and Bang Yen, and I was the you know FDA liaison person and just the paperwork girl. Um, but those guys ran an amazing trial. Um, they had 99% follow up at two years. I feel like it, it was it was double blind. It was randomized. It was um, we try, they, you know they eliminated bias in every way I can think of. The data was monitored by somebody from outside the department, right? So that you know we tried to. Anyway, it, it's a great, it was a good trial. And I really believe the results of that trial, which showed that at two years, um, you know, the patients who had a bare procedure were doing just as well as the patients who had a reconstruction and they recovered faster earlier. Um, and I can't wait to see the six-year follow-ups, which will start this spring on the x-rays um, to see what's going on with arthritis. Because that, that could be a big deal if, if we can minimize the risk of osteoarthritis for these kids. So. What, what do you look at as the, and, and I read, I read uh, the trial, I thought it was amazing as well. And, and um, it's, like you said, it's really well done. What do you think are the primary limitations 
of this procedure right now. And I guess the other thing, uh, going back to my kids, you know, it's hard for me sometimes to not be biased towards the fact that I think my kids are great and everything's, how do you, you've got this amazing child who you've been raising for whatever, 25 years. How do you, how do you avoid becoming too biased against the desire for this to succeed and overlooking some of the limitations that may be out there? Well, I, I think you have to just recognize that that's going to be your bias. It's always going to be your bias. So when patients came into my office and said, I want to talk about having the bear procedure, I um, just had to say, I can't really talk to you about that. If you'd like to talk about that, here are the people on the trial. We'll, let's set you up with them. They'll talk about it because you know, you're, and I I'd tell them, I'd say, I would tell you about it, but I'm totally biased. And then they would laugh and they would say, okay, that seems right. And then I would send them to have somebody else talk about it because I am, I can't, I can't not be excited about it. Right. So I don't think it's fair. For, it was ne- So for the bear trials, um, because I had an interest, we had the startup company, we were trying to get things moving on the, you know, on the side in case things worked. Right. And we had to run the FDA trial. I had a uh, big conflict of interest. So that's why I couldn't be a surgeon on these trials. And so we actually worked with the conflict of interest office at Children's with Tim Hogan, as well as at Harvard, to come up with a conflict of interest plan because nobody else was going to do the FDA paperwork, right? Nobody else wanted to do all the IRB stuff. So, um, and and I didn't want to ask my surgical partners to do that. They were doing enough, enrolling the patients, doing the surgery, doing the follow-ups and everything else. So uh, we crafted a conflict of interest plan. It was about 13 pages long. And basically it said, here's all the things Martha can do and here's all the things she can't do, right? I can't recruit patients. I can't talk to patients about the study. Everything I could think of where I could bias the study, we put into this document. Um, The data went from the patient to the research coordinator who put it in the database, had the independent study monitor monitor all the data in the database to make sure it all went in correctly. Data came out to the statistician. Statistician then populated the tables that we had pre-specified, right? So it was, we tried to think of every way to eliminate bias that we could. Um, But you're right, I'm always going to be biased about it. Yeah, which isn't a problem. Like, I mean, I'm biased against my kids, towards my kids. I think they're great. You know, it's, no, I, I think it's, that's a really um, uh, amazing sort of con- concept that you need to work through that and realize your own biases and sort of protect the the process against those. So, um, so that's great. Um, so I, I mentioned my good friend, John Scheneker. One of the cool things about this is, you know, I, I do a fair amount of hip surgery, but I'm sort of predominantly in spine. He doesn't do any spine. And one of the fun things that's been that we've had is the ability for me to look at his work and say, Hey, this would work really well in spine. Where else do you think, or I'm sure this has come up, do you think this concept could work elsewhere in orthopedics or in medicine? I mean, may it not just be in orthopedics, but have you thought about that? Like how this could translate into other areas? Yeah. So if you think about, think about in orthopedics, where we're kind of, where things could be better, right? So what things do we do right now that we wish were better? Um, And maybe we don't admit it, but we kind of do in our heart of hearts. So like, I wish like rotator cuff would heal better, right? Big tears. I wish there was something better we could do there than trying to pull this, you know, worn out tissue back to the bone under tension. And then as soon as the patient wakes up, maybe it pops a little bit and then we're right. That would be nice if we could do that better. I'd love it if we could be more confident that when we repair a meniscus, it actually heals, right? And not have to look at the MRI with the white signal in the meniscus and say, that's just scar tissue. It's all good, right? I I really wish I had a better answer for meniscus. I I wish... We had a less invasive way of treating osteochondritis desiccans and getting that fluid layer underneath the loose piece to really be gone other than putting big screws through it, either retrograde or antegrade or doing a lot of drilling. I wish there was better ways to get things to heal like that. Um, and that all comes down to really kind of intraarticular healing, 
right? So these are still problems for us. The tissues that are in joints don't really like to heal. So my thinking is that maybe some of these problems are occurring for the same reason that the ACL didn't like to heal. The synovial fluid gets in there, can't have a blood clot there. You've removed the biology that would stimulate healing and replaced it with a biologic environment that's anti-healing, essentially. You know, it's, it's uh, synovial fluid that has all kinds of enzymes that break down clot. Can we develop other types of implants that you could put inside the joint for it and get a tissue inside the joint to heal? Can we develop a meniscus implant that could go inside the tear site before you sew the, the meniscus back together? And that, that way it would block out the synovial fluid and let the meniscus heal. Could we put something in the, a rotator cuff defect where we can repair it back and maybe we can't get it all the way back, but in that gap, we put a scaffold that will encourage healing of the gap. Um, those types of things are the things that I really think about as next steps. And and we're going to get into some of your current duties in a second, but that's a lot. And those are a lot of big questions. And I mean, just getting to this point has taken you know, a long time and a lot of effort. Do you have sort of a legacy of people who are going to be working through those processes? Do you think, I mean, who can help you with that? Yeah. So I have a great staff in the lab. So we've got Ben Profen and Nick Sant and Liz Carew are all still in the lab and they're running the lab and um, they can do, you know, they do everything from soup to nuts. They can do manufacturing. They have the same experience with us with the FDA um, they have, you know, Ben Profen is an orthopedic surgeon from Germany who's very well versed in animal models. We can do animal surgery. So we've got a pretty good uh, basis for a larger team. Um, and we just need to get some funding to kind of expand that team and see if we can start doing some of these next problems. So gotcha. that's, that's the hope. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. So yeah, um, about two years ago, three years ago, we had down at Emory um, Jorge Orbe, who created a, you know, really impactful company in the world of hand surgery come and talk to our residents about innovation and his daily life. Uh, and it was it was pretty inspiring because he's got this lab right next to his clinic and he's shuttling between the two and between the two during uh, during his OR days where he can come up with a clinical question, go talk to the, la the people in his lab and uh, who are on his team and help create this thing. And that's that was a lot of work. You took something very successful that you know still has a ways to go, and you said, "I'm going to go be chairman," which is, I mean, like you know, it's it's one thing to sort of have a clinical question and sort of shuttle back and forth, but to really shift gears and do something, as you said, that is all-consuming. Was this something that you thought about for a long time and thought this would be great, or this just sort of came about? I'm I'm curious about the process. Of you be of you assuming a major leadership role when you have this this big venture going on that's truly you know a career defining kind of thing. No, I, I agree, um, and I think it was just a timing thing, really. Um, so basically, the company that that I took time off clinically to go get going um, last year. So they hired a CEO about three years ago. CEO has been gradually bringing people on. Um, and over that three years, they needed me less and less and less. So I was almost kind of semi-retired last year, right? So I was running the lab. That was pretty fun. And we were going down to the beach and that was really fun. And I was cooking dinner every night and it was, it was nice, right? Um, because the, the, really my teenager had gone to college, right? So we got Bayer to the company. Now it's the company's deal, right? I, there's nothing I can really do about it now. It's just like when you send your kids off. So I got to hope that they all do the right thing and that the, the baby survives and all of that's good. But there's not really much for me to do anymore, um, except to be there if somebody needs to call and say, hey, mom, I have this problem. What do I do? Right. So uh, and I'm happy to do that job. So I was kind of sitting there and I was kind of tired and I was thinking to myself, you know, I got to live the dream. I really did. 
I got to have this idea that I wanted to figure out. I got to do it. I got to, you know, I, I got, I had all these resources available that let me do it. That was, that was great. How awesome would it be to be able to do that for other people? Like that would be great. Could I, could I do that? That would be fantastic. And that's really why I put my name in the hat because I thought the only thing I can think of more gratifying than what I got to do with my life so far would be to help other people do the same thing. And I'm not saying everybody has to be an innovator. I'm just saying to help other people find the resources to get to whatever their dream is. How great would that be? Right. So um, that's what I look at this job as. And so that's that's why I put my name in. That's pretty awesome. So, I mean, my question that was my follow up question was going to be, you know, you've taken this unique path and that position has certainly, I think, helped. Uh, mold how you're how you're working as a chair right now. What are some of the sort of like overarching strategies you've had to to achieve what you were just talking about to help your uh, especially clinically motivated um, uh, clinicians within your group succeed? Um, and then you know how you bridge in research. What are some of the the things that you've done within the department that have really uh, been influenced by your career path? Right. So I'm still only like six months in. So you got to give me a little bit of time. So the first six months, I've really tried to focus on listening, right? Asking people, what do you need to be successful, either for your clinical practice or for your research or your teaching? What do you want to do, right? What are your goals? Trying to learn from people what their goals are. So then we can try to figure out how to plan a path forward. Um, And so, you know, Peter Waters left an amazing legacy of our Clinical Research and Effectiveness Center. Uh, which is a, a, a big entity that provides research support for people who particularly want to do clinical research. So trying to work with Bill Meehan to make sure that that's whole and that continues to be funded on an ongoing basis. Um, you know, so there's, there's a lot of great things that are already in place that we just need to kind of take care of and then see based on what the faculty want to do, what are the other resources we need to bring in to help people be successful for whatever it is that their particular mission is. I gotcha. Um, how uh, you've, I'm sure been affiliated, uh, pretty heavily with like, um, the sports societies and probably to some extent with POSNA, but now as chair, you've got this big sort of visible role. How do you look in the future to partner with, uh, with our specialty, subspecialty societies and specialty societies, um, as chair? Yeah, that's a good question. And I don't totally know the answer because I've never been a chair before. So yeah. I've been pretty active. I'm pretty active at, um, you know, with the Academy and their Devices, Biologics and Technology Committee. Um, I've really enjoyed working with AOSSM and being part of their Medical Publishing Board of Trustees and doing roles with them. And I'm super excited to join POSN. I hope Min will let me in. I applied this year. So <laughs> I'm super excited. Lot to see. I don't know. You know, you never know. Uh, but hopefully he'll say that's okay. And uh, I'm looking forward to really becoming much more involved in PASA and learning more about that organization as we move forward. So I think it's going to be really fun. As part of the membership committee, I'll put in a good word for oh, you. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Oh, that's great. See, I should have known that. I should have been sucking up more. Sorry. No, no, no. That's good. I'm pretty low down on it. So, um, well, that's good. So um, with all this going on, you you talked about the fact that your kids are out, right? Um, out of the yeah, house. One's still home. Yeah. Uh, one's still home. So, yeah. so tell me a little bit about your sort of family life at this point. I mean, what are the things that you enjoy? It was great. I had Min on the podcast last year and I didn't realize he has like an entire farm and he's got, <laughs> you know, a million kids and he eats dinner with them every night. Like what are the things that sort of from a, on a family side of thing that, that allow you to keep going and um, that really sort of tie the family together? Well, you know, it's interesting. My kids have 
been pretty independent most of their lives, right? So from the time they were like four weeks old, they got dropped off at daycare. We called it school, but they got dropped off at daycare at seven in the morning and picked up at six o'clock at night, right? And so they've always kind of done their own thing. Um, And I'm super proud of them all. I think they're great. I ended up getting divorced when my youngest was three. Um, and so that was interesting trying to do all this. It was, it was, that was probably pretty challenging. I'm just going to say that. So, but, but in the end, the kids learned to be, you know, independent. They knew how to tie their shoes. They knew how to get their lunch ready for school. They knew how to get on the school bus. Like they just had to do all the stuff because there wasn't anybody there to do it for them. Um, and they've turned out amazing. Uh, and then I got remarried about, I think about seven years ago now. And that, all of a sudden you realize, wait, it's really nice to have somebody else around uh, to help. Right? Yeah. So that I can was imagine. Um, and I think my, I ended up moving to be live a half mile from my parents. They've been instrumental in helping my kids grow up and being there for them. And you just appreciate your extended family, I think, as well as your immediate family uh, when you have kids and you're trying to work at the same time. Yeah, that's good. Um, are you a reader? Are you somebody who enjoy? I always enjoy asking this question. And actually, Don Bay and I have this funny thing where we send each other books um, that are sort of helpful. But are, are do you, have you found sort of as you've gotten into this uh, phase of your career and your life that there that you find interest in certain books or that there are books that you really have uh, have read that have helped you as you come into say a leadership position as chair? Yeah, there's lots of books on leadership that I've read. John Cotter's book on leading change is really good. Um, Getting to Yes is a classic, right, that everybody should read. There's lots of those. I also really enjoy, um, I have have about a 45 to an hour uh, long commute both ways because we live still out in the sticks by my folks. Um, And I love listening to the HBR podcast, the Harvard Business Review. I find those to be helpful. Um, There's always some nugget of good information that I take away from those. So I enjoy those as well. And I I also have to say my son, who's at uh, Penn State now, uh, Joe, recommended the Daily Stoic podcast to me. And I'd say that's probably my favorite. I yeah. really I read that almost every day or I listen to it every day. And I just um, I really enjoy those principles. So that's great. Well, Martha, this has been awesome. And uh, we like I said, we were going to I was going to be respectful of your time. And, and uh, we've, we're just over an hour Um Thank you so much. This has been, it's really an amazing story. Is, I don't know if there's any other aspects of it that you wanted to tell that, that I left out, but, but I've really enjoyed this a lot. Well, I'll say it, it's been great talking to you too, Nick. I really do appreciate it. And I, I would say that it's nice to be able to come here and talk about it, but this, none of this would have been possible without the, just the team, right? So we have a, I've been blessed with having a great team my whole career. The team's changed. People have come in and out, but people have always just been so willing to jump in and help and work as a team. It's been, that's really the reason that this all happened. I, I get to be the spokesperson, but it's really all about the team. And it's a lot of fun when you've got a good team. Oh my gosh. It's yeah. so good. Yeah. That's almost like sometimes worth more than the the research that you're doing. I love my team as well. And it's just, it's fun. We, we love hanging out together and stuff. So um, well, that's good. Well, I wish you a wonderful Saturday. Um, and I'm, I'm sure you've got lots of meetings and stuff like that. So maybe it won't be super quiet, but, uh, <laughs> but I do appreciate good. you doing this. And, um, and thank you so much. Thanks. And I hope to see you in Vancouver. Absolutely. I, I will be there. Well, like I said, and, and I'll, I'll make sure to put in a good uh, word for you on the, on the membership <laughs> thank, side thank of I'm sure, that, I'm sure they'll let it slide. So, I appreciate um, it. Of course. Well, enjoy uh, the rest of your day. Thank you. Thanks, Nick. Bye.